Welcome to the Creator State, where we share stories of social innovation and entrepreneurship for movers, shakers, creators, and changemakers. Each episode will celebrate success and failure, ingenuity, and the endless pursuit of knowledge. From education to implementation, join us as we explore everything in between. The Creator State. Crime novelist Todd Goldberg has made a career of writing about bad people behaving badly. A New York Times best-selling author of over a dozen books, including the popular Burn Notice series, his work has been published in a dozen languages all over the world. In addition to exploring the dark side of glitzy cities in his novels, he serves as director of UC Riverside's Low Residency MFA program, where he is a professor of creative writing. He is also co-host of the popular podcast Literary Disco with writer Julia Pistel and actor Ryder Strong. Goldberg's latest book is The Low Desert, Gangster Stories, a collection of short stories expanding upon the universe of his acclaimed Gangsterland series. Set mostly in Goldberg's own backyard of the Coachella Valley, his new book explores the noirish underbelly of California's inland desert. UCR Magazine associate editor Jessica Weber caught up with Goldberg to talk about falling in love with crime fiction, the secret world behind the palm trees and fancy desert resorts of Southern California, and why we sometimes root for the bad guy. Listen in for the lowdown on the low desert. Thank you for, for finding some time to chat with me. Um, I was able to, to read a, a couple stories from, from your, your book, so that, that was great. Did you encounter any clowns? I did. That, that was great. <laughs> I love that that was the first story. <laughs> Well, you know, you put a story like that at the beginning and anything can happen after that, you know? Mm-hmm. Like it sets that expectation like, oh, shit, like, did he put in a murder clown into his book? <laughs> right. And so then you're always a little off center. So that was, that was, uh, my editor was very wise to, to say, hey, like, let's use that one as the kickoff because it does all the weird that you do and the reader will never know what's coming next. And I was like, okay, I'm in it. I'm down for it. Can you uh, start by maybe just... I guess giving me sort of like a summary of how you would explain the low desert to people who aren't familiar with your work. Yeah. So the low desert is both a continuation and an expansion really of about the last decade of my writing life, which is that I spent the last decade writing mostly crime stories, crime novels, mm-hmm. um, but really focusing on organized crime specifically between Las Vegas and the Palm Springs area. And then also stretching out to Chicago um, And so I've done that in my books, Gangster Land and Gangster Nation, um, about a Chicago hitman who hides out in Las Vegas as a rabbi. And those, you know, those stories intersect with the low desert, but you don't need to read those books in order to enjoy the collection. But mostly what the low desert is about really is the underbelly of a place you think that you know. And that doesn't necessarily even mean need to mean that you know Palm Springs or resorts out here. It just means like every place that you visit, every place that you think is geared towards your enjoyment has an underbelly. And that underbelly is every single person who lives there wants you to leave. <laughs> <laughs> and because of that, there's typically a, a fairly pervasive organized crime element that um, is part and parcel to that world. And so that's a lot of what I'm writing about. And then, you know, I, I suspect that my time locked inside my house for the last year influenced some of the stories. And so there is, I think, a kind of 
quiet desperation for a world that doesn't exist anymore that happens in these stories also. And what would having read your previous novels, what would that bring for the reader for your new book? Well, you'd have a pretty good understanding of the Chicago crime families. Um, and essentially what happens in the low desert, there's one short story that takes place in Chicago in 1973. And it effectively is the pebble that drops into the pond that creates all the ripples in my work for the last 10 years. And so if you read Gangster Land and Gangster Nation, what the low desert is going to do is it's going to fill in some blanks for you. And it's going to deepen some of the characters and you're going to recognize people. I did some, some strange things. I brought people back from the dead. I reanimated people that um, were not animate. <laughs> I, I talked about the past that has only existed in dialogue before. So sometimes I took kernels from those books and I popped them just to see what would happen. And that is an analogy I have not yet used in any interview, and I'm going to use that again. Um, <laughs> remind me of that. Um, so it, reading those books would only deepen the experience, but it's not required. Yeah, I, when reading it, or the parts that I did read, I was like getting kind of like a Fargo feel, like the kind of interconnected. Yeah, you know, Palm Springs is kind of Fargo without the snow. Yeah. Um, <laughs> You know, because people come here to reinvent themselves all the time. And, you know, I grew up here and my mom was the society columnist for the local newspaper. And so her job was to go to parties and date sort of B actors and mid-level gangsters, basically. <laughs> and so as a kid, like I was aware of these people that were somebody somewhere else and then moved to the desert and sort of cashed in on whatever notoriety they had elsewhere to open a restaurant or open a bar or become a lounge act or run a Ponzi scheme. It was more often the Ponzi scheme than anything else. And this sort of, this place sort of lends itself to that. You know, there's a, there's a sheen of celebrity that exists in the desert, but there's also a real sort of grungy underbelly of drugs and criminality um, you know, there's, there's lots of gambling and drugs that are out here. And then there's also the very real notion that everything that we sit on in the Coachella Valley has been stolen from the tribes who own this land since the beginning, literally, of time. And so there's always this undercurrent of crime, even in the most glorious parts of this place. Can you talk a little bit about the genesis of this collection and why you decided to carry on the the stories in that same gangster land universe? Sure. So the genesis is born out of a couple things. The first was that I had written three really long books in a row. Uh, I'd written Gangster Land, um, The House of Secrets, and Gangster Nation back to back to back. And all of those books are, or each of those books rather, are 450 pages long. Mm -hmm. So they're really long books. And I was really tired. Like the idea of sitting right here, literally right here, and writing another 400-page book was like, I just didn't want to do it. The problem, the champagne problem, however, is that I was already under contract <laughs> to write another book. And I, I thought, you know, what I'd like to do really is write some stories and sort of refresh my, um, my desire to work on these, these characters. Along the same time, though, uh, I had sold the uh, TV rights to Gangster Land and Gangster Nation, and it was becoming clear that that I needed to 
not write my third book yet because if the television show went, um, I didn't want to finish off the trilogy before the TV show was out and not have a book out when the TV show was on. And alongside that, there was the realization that I needed to expand some of these characters to make this universe a bit more rich. So that goes to like why write in this universe. I, I, I knew that if I wanted to do this TV show that I needed to, um, I needed to have more people to talk about essentially in the show. Um, and so that was part of the, the genesis. And then I started to write the stories and I began to realize that there were other stories I wanted to tell that I hadn't had the time to tell over the course of the last several years. And specifically, those are the stories that take place at the Salton Sea. So the, the title story of the book, The Low Desert, takes place at the Salton Sea in 1962, which is when the Salton Sea was first being developed as a resort. And at that time, it was already a failed proposition. I mean, the Salton Sea was always going to be a failed proposition. It was, it was a grift from the start. But in the 1960s, it was being developed by these land companies and oil companies that were essentially all mob owned. And so I knew I wanted to write a story that was adjacent to that reality. And it didn't need to necessarily tie into this larger world, but I could write about organized crime and this area um, and still have it be satisfying for the readers of my other books. So all of these disparate ideas at the same time, all to avoid writing another book. <laughs> and in the process, all I ended up doing was write another shorter book. <laughs> but the, the process of writing a short story collection, um, emotionally, physically, tangibly, is a lot different than writing a novel. And from a human spirit point of view, um, being able to shift around and write about different people and use different voices and all that stuff, it really um, helped me out of the rut that I was feeling like I was in. And now I'm really eager to go back and write that, um, that third novel, which is good because it's due. <laughs> <laughs> and, and what kind of keeps you, what has kept you attracted to staying, I guess, in this, this universe that you've created? Well, you know, crime fiction in general um, interests me, obviously. And people who choose it as a career versus something that they do one time is really interesting to me. Like, how do you decide, like, well, I could get a job at Arby's or I could break legs for the Chicago mob. Like, well, Arby's has benefits. <laughs> and there's the horsey sauce, so that's nice. The Chicago mob doesn't have those things. Um, so I'm interested in sort of the structure of criminality that appeals to me. But writing crime fiction in general, like I, I don't write about the good guys. And so if my choice is to write about the bad guys, um, it's, it's somewhat easier for me to still put them in a, a structure of, of organization, because I think that's also compelling to, to the reader. There's the, there's the notion that there's that one lone wolf who does something and you're like, oh my gosh, no one could have ever predicted it. And then there's this notion of these things that are out in the open that we all know about that you could always predict. So the nature of organized crime in whether it be in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles or wherever, or street gangs in Los Angeles or any other American city, these are criminal elements <clears throat> that are essentially allowed to exist within this ecosystem because you can't stop them. They're, they, they spread virally. 
And as we've learned in the last year, it's really hard to stop a virus. <laughs> um, and so I'm compelled to work in this universe because I'm compelled by how these things feed into each other. The more organized crime there is, the more cops we need. The more cops and criminals, the bigger jails. The bigger jails, well, the bigger prisons, the bigger penitentiaries. Well, then you build a penitentiary, you're going to need to build a city around that penitentiary. Or we're going to need more cars. Oh, more cars means more cops. Like I'm, All these things filter in together and feed off one another. And I'm really interested in, in how those things sort of parasitically work with each other. And you mentioned kind of that you, you write about the bad guys. So how, how have you managed to get your readers to care about bad characters? <laughs> That's a good question. I mean, it, it's the thing that every morning, well, let's be clear, afternoon, when I start to work, um, like that's the thing. Like, how do I get people to care? And the honest truth is that there's some tricks, right? And the first and easiest one is that you make them interesting. You know, you make them compelling. You, they're not just a compendium of their worst traits. They do things as a consequence of something else happening to them. So there's that. You also give them someone who loves them. And so the characters that I write about typically have someone or something, there's often a dog involved, that loves them. Because once you see that that person is loved by someone, then they're no longer a blunt object. You can imagine them being tender. You can imagine them being emotional. Because for someone to fall in love with that person, they have to be vulnerable in some way. And so there's that little trick that you can do. But mostly, you know, I think the, the key for the kinds of books and stories that I write is that I write about a bad person surrounded by worse people. And if that person is the one thing that sort of writes chaos in that moment, well, then you're naturally going to root for that person. In the Gangsterland books, you know, writing about this fake rabbi, the, the constant is that organized crime, organized religion, and organized government are no different. And so here you have this one guy, Rabbi David Cohen, the hitman Sal Cooperteen, who recognizes that and is able to operate in all three realms with equal facility. Um, so a little bit of that filters into the stories as well, like people that are really good, super competent, doing things inside a corrupt world. People like to see that. Um, and then hopefully, Jessica, the real thing is that I'm just so overwhelmingly talented. People read my work and they're like, my God, this is the best thing I've ever experienced in my entire life. This is like a Reese's peanut butter cup dipped in a banana split. And, and you kind of, you mentioned a little bit talking about the process of writing the, the short stories versus writing a novel. How, how long did it take you to put this collection together? And, and were these stories kind of existing on their own at some point? Or was this always going to be a collection both. So there's a few stories in the book that are old that were in my previous collection, Other Resort Cities, but completely rewritten. So there's a short story, Palm Springs, and a story called The Salt, and a story called uh, Rainmaker that were all in my book, Other Resort Cities. But I, they were all still connected to one another and into this larger world that I had written, mostly because at the time I just did it to kind of amuse myself. And, you know, I wrote that book in 2000, or it was published in 2009. So I wrote it in 2007 and 2008. And I went back and I looked at those old stories and I was like, oh gosh, you know, what I was doing merely to amuse myself actually fits into this world that I have created. I'm going to rewrite these stories 
and really make the connections either more obvious or more interesting. So I did that. Um, the news stories, it was about a year's worth of work uh, writing them. So the last rewrites I did, though, I finished on April 28th of, of 2020. Um, I had turned in the original draft of the book in um, October of 2019. My editor had me do rewrites through April. And then I also wrote some some new stories. So I'd written, there's 12 stories in the book, and I had written maybe 16 stories for the book. And then we sort of chose which ones to, to put in there. So there's a few others that are on the, the cutting room floor. But at the same time, I was being asked by magazines and anthologies and, and places like that for work. And so I would use the stories I was writing for those too. So for instance, there's a story called uh, Goon Number 4 about a... Um, about the guy in the background, goon number four, the, the dude who just stands in the back and looks hardcore and realizing that like his job as a goon, his days are up and he's going to go back to school. So he gets to, takes a class at a community college and learns how to work on the college radio station. And I, I knew I wanted to write that story, but at the same time, one of my heroes, uh, the crime writer Lawrence Block, was putting together an anthology of crime stories that take place in higher education and asked me if I would write something. And I was like, oh, just the right thing. Um, and, you know, that's, that's sort of a, a champagne problem to have. Like, oh, gosh, you know, people want my stuff and I have stuff ready. Um, so a lot of it was new. Some of it was old. Some of it was written for other things. And I put it in there. But in the end, you know, everything gets rewritten with the eye towards making the, the story collection really flow. Because what I want with a story collection is, I, number one, I want you to read it in order because there's a spoiler that happens late in the book um, about what happens to a character that you're very interested in from the early portion of the book. So if you're watching this, read it in order. But you want the short story collection to have the flow of a novel, really. And there's this wonderful essay about making short story collections called Stacking Stones that I read many, many years ago. And I've, I've sort of internalized it now, this notion of putting a story collection together like you would stack stones you know, to make those strange spires of stones that should not stand up together. But they do. They notch together in those weird ways. Not that I've ever been able to make that happen. I should note. <laughs> but I can do it in fiction. And But I like that sort of notion of, oh, this fits here, this fits here, this fits here. It doesn't seem like it should work, but by the end, nature takes over and it does. Um, so that whole process, you know, it was probably a year and a half in total of writing and editing and, and moving stuff around. And your stories are very kind of grounded in the setting and the kind of sparse desert and tied to the area. Can you talk a little bit about what uh, the landscape sort of adds to the stories? Yeah, you know, the desert can kill you. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's just the truth. Like today, um, it's going to be 95 degrees in the desert. And I have really good air conditioning. So it's, you know, it's 73 degrees inside my house right now. But if it were 95 degrees anywhere else in America right now, you don't have air conditioning, there'd be, there'd be news reports about people dying in their homes. The, the desert is always one broken AC unit or scorpion bite or rattlesnake bite away from killing you. <laughs> and this happens over and over and over again when you live here. You know, it's beautiful. Like, I, I live in a gated community on a golf course and a man-made lake. So it's just, it's just beautiful. On the other side of the golf course, 
at night, packs of coyotes roam the open desert and howl like they're eating small human beings on the other side of my fence. And I have to run outside and grab my dog and come inside. Like there, there's an apex predator that roams the golf course at night. Like I'm living in Jaws. That's weird, right? Like that's weird. And then every year about this time, you know, spring into summer, a tourist will come and go hiking in Joshua Tree and they'll disappear. All that means is they died. They didn't disappear. Aliens didn't get them. They went off the trail. They had a single bottle of water and they died. Mm-hmm. So like that is the undercurrent of all the stuff that happens in the desert. And then people are just living here pretending like they're impervious to that. Mm-hmm. It's a weird thing. Like that's a really wow. weird way to live, knowing that the very place that you're in, the very nature of the place that you're in, is designed to kill you. Mm-hmm. So, ergo, I write about people who don't care about that. <laughs> Can you talk a little bit more about some of maybe the specific themes that you're exploring in your, your collection? Uh, I don't really ever think about theme. I gotta be honest with you, Jessica. Like I never, like, I don't ever sit down and be like, what's the theme today? <laughs> <laughs> or, I, I mean, Jessica, have you ever gone to a bookstore and been like, hey, do you have any good themes? <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, what I write about more often than not is um, the aftermath of bad decision making, at least in this book, because you're not, you're not always in the moment. Um, You're often seeing someone one step after they've made a terrible choice or one step before the consequences of their actions are about to take place. So for instance, the title story of the, or not the title story, the first story in the book, The Royal Californian is about a guy who um, is a professional karaoke singer who is also um, a drug dealer. And he gets angry with his business partner, kills him, chops off his head, and tries to make a run for it. But then his car breaks down in Indio, and he has to spend the night at a hotel in Indio and figure out what his next move is going to be, as happens. Mm -hmm. That's the thing that happens. We can all admit that. And so I'm writing about the worst possible human being that's ever lived, which is, I think, thematically a thing that I do. But I'm also examining the emotional reasons he or she got that way. And so that's the thing that interests me is, um, is what a person is like on their worst day. What do they do? And what propels us as, as humans toward violence? Um, you know, there's always a choice you can make to not hurt somebody, right? Mm-hmm. And I... I tend to always examine the person who makes the choice to hurt someone. And if they don't hurt someone, it's because they've chosen not to for a very specific reason. Um, so I, I think that's, that's one of the larger points of um, storytelling that I, that I examine is that person on their worst day and, and the choices they make either to kill someone or kill themselves <laughs> or kill a clown. <laughs> Do you have a favorite story or character from from your collection? And if so, what appealed to you most about writing it? I think my favorite character in the book is the cocktail waitress named Tanya. So there there are two stories in the book that concern a a cocktail waitress named Tanya who um, adopts a, a child from Russia in the 1990s. And then that child disappears and she spends, um, the rest of her life 
sort of alternately searching for this child and searching for the reasons that she adopted her in the first place. And it might seem like an odd character for me to have be my favorite because she's the one person who does not do anything horrible. She only does the right thing. But I'm fascinated by her because she is the result of other characters she'll never meet doing terrible things. So that I mentioned before, this character in 1973 in Chicago, this gangster, this pebble that drops into the, wa- the, into the pond, this character in Chicago in 1973, his death causes this woman to adopt a child in Russia in 1990 and then eventually causes that child to disappear. All these different interconnections um, work that way and she'll never know that. And her life will be either dreadful or um, happy, irrespective of, of whether or not she ever knows that. And so I'm, I'm interested in that person who lives on the periphery of, of a violent act whose life is changed because someone else made a terrible decision. And I also just like writing about her. Writing, writing from a, a woman's point of view was, um, was a challenge for me the first time I did it years ago. And I think writing that character of Tanya um, has made me a better writer also. I think you, you, meant, you talked about this a little bit in the beginning, but could you talk a little bit further about where your attraction to the crime genre originated and maybe who, who some of your influences are? So I got into crime really young. Um, so my brother Lee is a crime novelist also. And um, when he went off to college, he left me bags and bags and bags of like pulp fiction, not the Quentin Tarantino variety, but actual pulp fiction. So John McDonald and Jim Thompson and Elmore Leonard and Donald Westlake and Lawrence Block and, you know, all sort of the titans of noir fiction. And then he also left me, you know, books like Mac Bolan, The Destroyer, and, you know, all these really terrible books that were like Mac Bolan number 99 through 150. Um, And that was my YA fiction. Like, you know, kids today are reading Fault in Their Stars. I was reading like Assassin's Creed, you know? I was, <laughs> I was learning from a very young age how to be a very bad person or how to write books. <laughs> so that was, I think, the, my beginning interest in crime fiction is just like that was what I was reading. Also because um, I should know, I didn't learn to read until I was about 10. Uh, I was, uh, I, and I remain profoundly dyslexic. And once I learned how to read, finally, crime fiction was particularly easy to read. The pulps were because, you know, they're 185 pages long, mm-hmm. um, very simple language, not a lot of florid stuff, not a lot of metaphor. It was just sort of bam, 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 straightforward stuff. And so that, I think, sparked an initial interest in me in, in the genre because I could read it. But also I just liked, I liked the action, I liked the duplicity, and I liked, um, I liked the way that even then that crime looked at the world. And so as I grew older, my desire to write crime fiction um, was sort of balanced by my desire to be a a literary man of the world that you want to be when you're 25, right? (laughs) Like, oh, I'm going to wear turtlenecks. (laughs) I'm going to wear an awful lot of turtlenecks and I'm going to be very smart. I'm going to go to Paris. I don't know why I wanted to go to Paris other than I really like Nutella. But as it happened, as as I grew older, I found that writing crime fiction was for me really the way that I enjoyed most looking at the things I did not know. So I don't, I don't write what I know. I write what I'm 
troubled by most often. Um, I write by the, about the things that I have questions about in the world. And, um, and crime allows me to do that because I think the best crime fiction hangs a, a mirror up in front of society and says, look at what you've done. This is what's happening in the real world. And, you know, what, what happens in families, of course, is important as well. Um, but you're most interested, I think, in family stories when someone does something terrible, something criminal. And so all of that sort of has played a role in my desire to write crime fiction over the years. Um, but also, it's just fun. Like, you know, I don't have to sit and think too much about, like, the pain of someone's mother. Like, I can just blow up a city. And that's fun. Like, that, that's actual enjoyable experience. There's a review of my book that came out, of this new book that came out a couple months ago. And the, the critic said, like, I don't know if Todd Goldberg knows what he's talking about, about organized crime, but it sure seems like he has an awful lot of fun doing it. And I was like, that is exactly it. <laughs> that, is, that is exactly the point. Yes, I'm having an awful lot of fun doing it. So my last question for you, so I might be kind of asking you to be a psychologist right now. Why, why do you think so many people are attracted to the crime genre? Oh, I know why. And, you know, it happens sort of um, cyclically in society. You know, when you, when you think about the rise of the pulps, they were coming out of, the, of World War II, or World War I, rather, and then also at the same time as the Depression. When you think about sort of the great crime fiction of the 1970s, it was coming out of Vietnam and out of Watergate. When you think about, um, you know, the crime fiction's coming out in the last 10 years, you know, you're, you're looking at a world that was supposed to be post-racial that turns out was not. You know, all these things that are happening in society that are bubbling out, all this stuff that we see on TV, all the stuff we're seeing in the pandemic, all this stuff. What crime fiction does is it examines those things in a way that is boiled down to a simple crime. So that's part of it. But also, when you're feeling like you're living in chaos, Reading crime fiction, whether it's a detective novel or what I do, you know, sort of noir fiction or a thriller, it's extraordinarily satisfying when you're living in chaos to read about chaos and have someone or something go in and fix it. And then at the end of that book, it's over with. That chaos is done. So in the last four years, for instance, I don't know if you felt this way, but I sure felt this way, like that a lot of times everything was beyond my control, that nothing was the way it should be and I didn't know how to fix it. And you kept hoping for a superhero, like Superman. Superman's really sort of also like a, a gunslinger. You were waiting for Superman to land on the White House and solve it, right? Mm -hmm. That's what crime fiction does. A superhero lands in Gotham City and solves the problems. And this is also why you see this sort of rise in true crime. Um, I, like every night I watch some sort of true crime murder thing on a forensic channel. And it's extraordinarily satisfying because they catch the person. The horrible thing has an end. Mm -hmm. Not every horrible thing has an end in our lives. When you read crime fiction, the horrible thing has an end. And that is extraordinarily satisfying on an emotional level. And then on an intellectual level, the problem solving that you see allows you to believe like, oh, all we need to solve everything else that's out here is smart people on the job. And then it turns out every now and then when the smart people get back on the job, that's exactly what happens. <laughs> so 
that's the joy of crime fiction. That's why since the beginning of TV through, you know, tonight, there's always been a show about a cop solving a crime because it's satisfying. Thanks for listening. Find more information at creatorstate.com and read more about Todd in the spring 2021 issue of UCR Magazine. Find it online at magazine.ucr.edu. There's a team creating this podcast. Help us out by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you listen. And while you're there, leave us a review. Our producer for the show is Jennifer Merritt with audio and editing by Kevin Williams, digital strategy by Kelly McGrail and Madeline Adamo, and designed by Chrissy Danforth, Denise Wolf, Brad Rowe, and creative director Luis Sands. Special thanks to Omar Shamut and Jessica Weber.